welcome to ClinForm Pod, a podcast for clinical pharmacology and therapeutics, produced in association with Wiley. In this episode, I interview Dr. Marilyn A. Hustis from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. What are novel psychoactive substances? When do they first begin to appear and why? Well, novel psychoactive substances is a term that means a new drug that's on the market and that is trying to imitate the effects of a drug that we know well, like cannabis or marijuana or opiates and heroin, for example. And they began to appear in Europe in the early 2000s, and they were very difficult initially to figure out because they were brand new compounds that didn't react as we expected in the usual tests for those compounds and they were clearly introduced as a way to make money, large sums of money on a substance that would be illegal if it uh, had the same structure but they're Uh, slightly different. The molecules are slightly different than a drug that may be scheduled in a particular country, but meant to be more potent and more powerful. Now that so many different compounds have been introduced, and in fact, the European uh, early warning system has indicated that more than 450 brand new compounds have been introduced on the worldwide drug market since 2004, we realized that there really were novel psychoactive substances before that time. Heroin, for instance, that was introduced in the early 20th century would be considered a novel psychoactive substance now, as would MDMA or ecstasy. But those compounds, a few at a time, were introduced over many years. Now we have constant new drugs being put on the market uh, every single week. And these drugs are much more potent and have had serious uh, morbidity and mortality associated with them. What are the different classes of novel psychoactive substances? Well, the first compounds that were introduced were the synthetic cannabinoids. And these are compounds that bind to the same receptors in the brain that cannabis or marijuana binds to, but they can be up to a hundredfold more potent than the marijuana itself. That was closely followed by the synthetic cathinones, which mimic the uh, compound that we all know as CAT or cathinone that comes from Somalia and other areas of Africa. They're stimulants. And again, this class of drug has now exploded on the market with, for the first time in 2015, more synthetic cathinones were introduced than synthetic cannabinoids, which had been the first group. Since that time, the the sky is the limit. We now have synthetic 
synthetic benzodiazepines that mimic the typical benzodiazepines like uh, uh, Valium and other uh, drugs that are used as sedatives or sleep aids or anxiety reducers. And the most lethal new component are the synthetic opioids. And currently in the United States, we have an epidemic of these compounds that are much more potent and being mixed with heroin or actually substituted completely for heroin. And we have many overdose and deaths associated with these compounds. So it appears now that all compounds are open for uh, mimicking. And why? Because according to the Drug Enforcement Agency, the profit margin on these drugs is much, much higher than for drugs that have to be synthesized like cocaine from natural products. And furthermore, the opportunity to be caught and punished by uh, going to jail for selling and marketing these compounds is much less because almost all of it is done over the Internet. So the ability to reach these individuals and stop them from producing these compounds is tremendously reduced. Why is it so difficult to determine what synthetic cannabinoid was ingested? So it turns out that these drugs are so potent that unless you... Uh, are able to get a blood sample or an oral fluid or saliva sample very close to the time of ingestion, because they're so potent, the doses are very low, and they disappear from the bloodstream or from saliva very rapidly, which means you need to measure metabolites in the urine. The problem is these are brand new drugs and we don't even know how they're metabolized in the human body. And so there's a tremendous effort as seen in the paper in the special issue by Dow and myself on the efforts that are needed to be done to determine what are even the metabolites that we should be looking for in urine. And so that work has to be done, and it takes time and it's expensive to do. But until that's done, we don't even know what to be looking for in urine to identify uh, these different drugs. And then the second problem is that uh, we don't have standards. And in testing, whether it be in hospitals for acute overdoses or whether it be done in forensic laboratories to determine cause of death, we need standards to be able to verify which are the compounds that are present. So this is unfortunately um, a difficult problem in the ability of toxicology laboratories to respond to this problem, this important public health safety issue. Do novel psychoactive substances offer the potential for new pharmacotherapies? It's thought perhaps they do. These are uh, very potent compounds. In many cases, they might be specific for um, specific uh, receptors in the brain and the body. And there are individuals who are looking at the potential for therapeutics of these compounds. If that's the case, 
then of course they could be made under good manufacturing conditions. Uh, they could be prepared by pharmaceutical companies that would determine not only the efficacy of these compounds, but safety as well. Uh, and then they could be uh, controlled by the FDA and available as uh, from pharmacies. But currently, we don't know the effects of these drugs, and certainly in the clandestine laboratories where they're being produced, uh, they contain contaminants, they may not be pure, uh, and we don't know the um, the when someone takes the drug, we don't know what kind of toxicity could be produced by the active compound as well as the many contaminants that might be present. But there is clearly possibility for some of these offering good therapies in the future if they can be studied appropriately. What are the ethical concerns surrounding cognitive enhancers and exercise memetics? There is obviously an unmet need to be able to have drugs that will improve a cognitive performance. For instance, in schizophrenics, the cognitive deficits that they have is one of the main uh, problems of the disease and their ability to function well in society. So having a drug that would improve uh, their ability to function would be excellent. Also, from the point of view of Alzheimer's or strokes or other medical illnesses or conditions, if you could improve someone's ability uh, to perform cognitively, it would be a tremendous benefit for them. However, there are ethical concerns about using these drugs that might be very effective for certain uh, illnesses in uh, individuals who don't have deficits, maybe to perhaps give them a cognitive advantage uh, in performance, uh, maybe to uh, affect children and their brain development. So there are certainly aspects that need to be considered about cognitive enhancers. Um, the other is the same for the issue about exercise memetics. There are certainly medical conditions where individuals are not able to exercise appropriately, which would be very helpful for them. Uh, the, the issue about the exercise memetics is that they focus only one aspect of the positive effects of exercise. So um, other aspects like an individual's well-being or the feeling of being active and being fit uh, may not be um, achieved by using these specific exercise memetics that act on one part of the cycle. And in this special um, issue, you will find an article about exercise memetics and the specific areas where they've found um, that they may be active. Then there's also the ethical concern about doping in sports. Uh, we want individuals to compete to the best of their ability without using drugs that may give them an unfair advantage. And one of the issues about exercise memetics is 
how do you provide them to the people who really need them, just as the same for cognitive enhancers, without them being used inappropriately, for example, for doping in sport to give them the unfair advantage. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Custis. That was very enlightening. Um, do you have any closing remarks? Um, <clears throat> I have very much enjoyed working on this issue. I think it's tremendously interesting and thought-provoking over each and every issue that's included. Um, it's a huge variety of the field right now of novel psychoactive substances, and I think it clearly uh, could make people think very differently about a number of interesting uh, questions. That was Dr. Marilyn A. Hustis, and you can find her article at onlinelibrary.wiley.com. I'm Dennis Velasco. Thank you for listening. Blind Farm Pod is a co-production of the American Society for Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics and Wiley.